please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And we're just going to look at two verses today. And this is very deliberate. These verses are extremely paradigmatic. Uh, they're, they're worth camping out on for an entire sermon. So that's why we, we organized it that way. We're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 of Colossians chapter 2. Let me invite you to stand as I read this for us. This is the active and living word of the Lord, so put your full attention on this. Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Y'all can have a seat. Father, we ask for you to do a miracle in our minds right now. Renew our minds and make our, our hearts receptive. Deliver us from being distracted. In fact, eclipse our distraction with whatever is perhaps preoccupying us right now and prevail on us and cause, cause us to be distracted with you. Compel us to be enamored with you and this mystery of our salvation, which is the salvation we have in Jesus of Nazareth, exclusively through him. We, we know you, the father who has adopted us, who has established us as his treasured people, his treasured possession for all eternity. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus now. We ask this in his name. Amen. I know a lot of you have seen the documentary, The Rescue, and if you haven't seen it, um, let me chastise you and say you need to see it. It's, it's a must-see documentary. It tells the true story of this cave rescue operation, and it's, it's unlike any other, I think, rescue operation in world history. Rescue operation. It's um, the story of these 12 boys, the soccer team, and their coach, and uh, what happened is... Um, where they live in Thailand, there's this cave, the, the Tam Luang Cave. And uh, like most caves, I mean, it's extensive. The further you go back into this thing, it's, it's just this labyrinth of tunnels and passages. And these, these boys and their coach, they venture back into this cave around two and a half miles. And unbeknownst to them, there's, there's flooding going on at other parts in the mountain range above them. And so all this water is, is filtering down into the caves and into those tunnels that they, have just, that they have just gone through. And so when they turn to head back toward the mouth of the cave, they discover that the passages are full of water. And there, there's no way they can swim two and a half miles back to the mouth of the cave. They can't hold their breath that long. And even if they could, I don't know if you've ever been in a cave, but it's, it's very disorienting. It's very dark and... The, the tunnel system itself is very erratic. Like there's no such thing as just, hey, take a right-hand turn or a left-hand turn. I mean, it's just real tight squeezes. It's, it's very, very confusing to navigate a cave. Very easy to get lost. Then the, the Navy SEALs of Thailand are called upon. So you think, okay, it's all gonna be okay. The Navy SEALs, I mean, if anybody can rescue these boys in, in the depths of this cave, the Navy SEALs can, can rescue them. But they, they find out pretty quick that the Navy SEALs, they can't even get back to the boys. They can't even find them. In fact, one of the Navy SEALs dies trying 
to just locate the boys, to get two and a half miles into this cave system. It's, it's so, so intense. It seems impossible that these boys will ever get rescued. And there's no logical, sensible, safe way to get these boys out of the cave. Then an extremely unconventional, highly eccentric group of foreign divers hears about this predicament and they travel to Thailand to help with this situation. And they, they say, we, we have a way to get the boys out of the cave, but it's extremely risky. It's kind of absurd. Perhaps it strikes you as illogical or, or not very sensible and it will be very unpopular with, with the Thai government and, and the population in general. So here's the plan. These divers are going to swim back to these boys. They're able to find them and they are going to, they're going to administer anesthesia. These, these divers, most of them aren't doctors. They're not anesthesiologists, but they say there's no way to swim these boys out of the cave while they're awake. I mean, just the panic instincts when you're in a cave, let alone a cave filled with water and there's no oxygen, uh, there's no way that they can be awake. So we have to administer anesthesia. We also have to fit them with masks that are airtight. You know how when you go to the swimming pool in the summertime and you got the goggles on and a little water leaks in from underneath or in the side? Well, that can't happen. They can't allow any water to penetrate this mask or else these boys will drown. So they have to somehow put these airtight masks on them and keep them asleep under anesthesia. And then of course they have to carry them two and a half miles through these, these dark death waters that have filled this, this tunnel system in the cave. And it just feels so overwhelming. Now, let me just pause right there and ask you this. If you're one of the boys stuck back in the depths of the cave, what's your role in all of this? What, 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 what part do you play? Well, your, your role is to simply receive what is being offered to you. Right? When these foreign divers show up and they have this absurd plan to save you, you, you can really do nothing other than say, well, we're in a radically desperate situation and all we can do is receive what is being offered. And that's how anyone who truly receives Jesus receives him. If anybody has sincerely embraced Jesus as their savior, it's been a, a, a moment of radical receptivity. Jesus isn't a, a generic savior, someone who offers you some, some consulting counsel and then kind of sets you on your way. If anybody receives Jesus, it's because they know that they are in a desperate, very desperate situation. And this passage says, as you received Jesus, with this posture and this, this primary um, position of being desperate, radically needy, so walk in him. As you received him, so continue to be desperately dependent on him and radically receptive to him. Now, when I first became a Christian, uh, I, I thought of myself kind of like one of those boys in the cave, right? Like I had ventured into some dark, depraved situations, some really desperate situations. Like my whole life, up until about the age of 18, I, I just trusted in myself. I did whatever felt right to me, whatever was wise in my own eyes. And I, I was a wretched person. Uh, I, I, had, I had worked myself into a, a very depraved, dark place. And so I, I was in a very desperate situation. And then this foreigner showed up. 
this, this savior named Jesus of Nazareth. He's very eccentric. And in the most absurd way, and in the most risky kind of way, he saved me. And when I say absurd, I mean, I was his enemy. I, I had been an opponent of God. I, I had said, God, I don't want you in my life. I want to lean on my own understanding. I want to do life on my terms. And I don't want your, your lordship or your authority in my life. I didn't want God. And yet, even though I had made myself alienated from God, an enemy of God, he sent his son to pursue me, to save me. And then his plan to save me was essentially to get himself crucified. Like this was the primary goal of my savior, to get himself crucified so that he could atone for my wretchedness and depravity and sin. And so that happened to me. This miracle occurred in my life. I, I came to know Jesus as my savior. And then I assumed that my savior wanted me from then on to stay out of dangerous places like caves and water. <laughs> I assumed that Jesus wanted me to live a safe, predictable life from then on. I assumed that he wanted me to steer clear of risks and never, ever put myself in such a vulnerable, weak predicament ever again. But then I came to find out that that is not at all what he wanted. In other words, he did not save me from my sinful self in order to set me on a path of felt safety and self-sufficiency. He saved me in order to unite me to himself and to make me a new creation. And that's terrifying. That was deeply unsettling for a number of reasons. Number one, I really, really prefer feeling safe. And I, I, I very much prefer the delusion of self-sufficiency. And, and here my savior was very clearly saying, I'm going to rob you of your preferences for safety and self-sufficiency. Like one of Jesus' primary agendas in my life is to undercut and undermine my agenda to feel safe and self-sufficient. So that's kind of unsettling that my rescuer is actually working against my primary priorities. <laughs> Furthermore, it's terrifying that my rescuer wants me to be united to him, to go with him wherever he goes, to follow him into the types of of things that he's about. So let's think of it like this. What if one of those rescuers who saved one of those boys in, in the cave in Thailand, what if after he rescued one of those boys, one of those divers went up to, to one of the rescued boys and said, hey, I'd like to invite you to come with me and join me and to follow me and do the types of things that I love to do, the things that I'm passionate about doing. Well, well, what would that mean for that boy who had just spent all this time, maybe up, upwards of almost a month in the back, uh, in the depths of this dark death cave? Well, that would mean that you're going to hitch your wagon to a rescuer who loves to go diving in dark death caves in the waters that everybody's trying to avoid, right? I mean, the reason these divers were so proficient, the reason they could do what the Navy SEALs couldn't do is because their hobby, like the thing they enjoy doing, is diving into these, these dark cave waters for fun. So if, if one of them saved you and then said, I want to unite you to myself and, and I want you to follow me and, and learn my ways, 
Well, that would be the opposite of felt safety. That would not make you feel self-sufficient. Y'all, I have to confess, when I first became a Christian, when I first became a Christian, I had this picture of a mature Christian that looked like this. I thought, you know, a mature Christian is basically a church attender. A mature Christian is someone who goes to Bible studies, like every week they attend a Bible study in a comfortable location, like a churchy place, a churchy building where there's comfortable seating and there's coffee and there's snacks. And they, they just very academically study the Bible and they practice self-preservation as, as a community. That's what mature Christianity looks like. <laughs> and, and God would never, ever call us to feel you know, weak or take risks or, or, or draw us into vulnerable situations. But then I started reading the Gospels and I saw how Jesus actually did things. And I was dismayed to find that Jesus does not play, play things safe. He doesn't. Uh, he's always personally going into dark, dangerous places. He's pursuing sinners, like real sinners, highly sinful, depraved people, villainous people, like greedy tax collectors, prostitutes, and just the, the scum of the earth. He is hanging out. With, with all the wrong types of people, the really desperate, depraved types of people. And then he's like keeping them in this posture of desperation because after he saves them, he, he incorporates them into his flock and he says, now I'm going to deploy you as my agents in the world. I'm gonna send you into the world as sheep amidst wolves. That's what he says. Now, I'm not, I'm not a shepherd, but it just feels... It does not feel smart. It doesn't feel safe to send sheep out into the world at all because sheep are not the most self-sufficient creatures. And then to knowingly send them into a world where, where there are wolves lurking around, that does not feel smart or safe. On top of that, Jesus sends his disciples out into the world with this very offensive message. Like he's, he's sending his disciples out with this message of a crucified savior, right? Not a prosperous savior, not, not a king who, who dwells in a luxurious palace, but a savior whose intention is to land himself on the cross. We preach Christ in him crucified, which, which God says, this is going to be a stumbling block for people. People are going to find this very absurd. It's going to feel foolish. It's going to be offensive to people. You're going to invite people to come and meet a man who will totally expose them. Right? He's going to expose them and their villainy and their depravity. And nobody wants to be exposed. And God says, that's what I'm sending you into the world with. A message of conviction, of exposure, a message of, of radical reliance on Christ while Jesus constantly robs you of your self-sufficiency. God also then, he says, I'm not just sending you out with this offensive message, but there's this scene in the Gospels where he sends his disciples out with nothing. Like, he, he, they, they are inescapably in a position of desperate dependence. He sends them into the world and he says, I don't want you to take anything for your journey. I want you to feel vulnerable. I want you to feel dependent and needy. He says, don't take food, don't take luggage, don't take money. When you enter a town... When you find someone who's hospitable, they're willing to take you in, just receive whatever they give you. Feel vulnerable, feel dependent in every station and stage of life. There's this conversation between 
Peter and Jesus at the end of John's gospel. And it's, it's really a conversation all about Christian maturity. You know, Peter, all throughout the gospel narratives, feels like he has a grasp of what real greatness is, what true Christian maturity is. And in John chapter 21, Jesus and Peter are talking about what, what's true maturity. And Jesus says this to Peter. He says, when you were young, which is to say when you were immature, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, right? You felt very self-sufficient. But as you grow in your faith, as you mature and you get older, you will stretch out your hands and other people will dress you and carry you where you perhaps do not want to go. And it says, Jesus says this to Peter to show by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And really, that's, that's what Christian maturity is. It's how we surrender our preferences and priorities for safety and self-sufficiency. And we glorify God. How will Peter bring glory to God? Well, by following this path of his Savior, by, by losing his life, giving up his life to serve other people for the glory of God. Perhaps most succinctly, Jesus puts it this way in John 15. He says, I'm the vine and y'all are the branches. Everything you get in life comes from me. You never detach from me. You never graduate from me. Every good thing you get is from me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so as you received me, desperately, radically dependent, so continue to receive from me. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's what's being emphasized in this illustrative language found in verse 7. This, this statement of being rooted, built up, established in the faith. On the one hand, verse 7 isn't really saying anything new. It's simply adding texture and color and illustrative, illustrative language to what's already been said which is that the desperation with which you first received Jesus, never lose that. Never, ever lose that desperate dependence on Jesus. It'd be like saying to a married couple, you know how when you first met your spouse and, and you guys were dating and you were curious about your spouse, you were intentional, uh, you gave them the benefit of the doubt, you were thoughtful, Never lose that level of curiosity and intentionality and benefit of the doubt. For the, for the decades to come throughout your marriage, as you began so intentional, so curious, so retain that curiosity and intentionality. That's how relationships are meant to thrive. And God says, that's how it is in your relationship with me. You were designed to be in a relationship with God where you are radically, always and forever, desperately dependent. And because our ongoing desperate dependence is so important, we, we see God here in this passage, he strives to assault our imaginations with these metaphors, with these illustrations. He uses the illustration of being rooted. So in this metaphor, you're the plant or you're the tree, and Jesus is the root system. Now, let's, let's observe that roots are actually really helpful just in general, like all the surrounding area around the plant or the tree, erosion is mitigated against because of the roots. It just roots are good for all kinds of reasons. And then specific to the tree or the plant, root, they send that, that nutrition up into the plant or the tree. Roots can even make defensive compounds to help protect trees or plants from invasive pests. And of course, roots are, are what keep the tree or the plant anchored Right? This is the ballast of the tree. This is what keeps it firmly anchored. 
So to ask the obvious question, what should a mature tree do throughout its, throughout its entire life? It should keep receiving always and forever be desperately dependent on those roots. You know, that's worth clarifying. That's worth pointing out because oftentimes we think of, of true greatness or Christian maturity as sort of launching, like the space shuttle. Like we had Jesus as sort of the scaffolding for a time and, and you know, the, the rocket launchers, Jesus really helped us to, to really get up off the ground. But, you know, then eventually like we take the controls, we, we get out into orbit and, and we do our own thing. And God says, that's not how it works. It's not, it's not this picture of launching. It's this picture of rootedness. You're a tree. You're not a space shuttle. A tree is built up by always staying rooted, never launching. A healthy, mature tree is established, firm in its, its faith, its receptivity, if it remains rooted. And regularly receiving also comes with this spirit of never taking what we get from God for granted. That's this last line, abounding in thanksgiving. God says, I don't want you to just receive in this automated kind of way. I don't want you to take for granted all of the good gifts and nutrients and mature things that I'm cultivating in your life. I want you to be aware of those good things, those good gifts, and then I want you to always be abounding in thanksgiving. Uh, for the first 18 years of my life, I lived with this couple out in southwest Kansas named Randy and Kate Dirks. I actually spent the first nine months of my existence in Kate's womb. I was very, I was very needy. I, I didn't do anything. I just, I just was curled up in the fetal position, receiving nutrients, receiving all kinds of you know, life-sustaining stuff from this, this lady named Kate. And then for 18 years, I lived in their home, you're not gonna believe this, completely rent-free. Almost two decades, never paid rent. Never even came up. On top of that, I never paid a single bill, right? The, the power bill, the gas bill, like nothing. I never paid for a single thing. Like we'd travel places. I needed to be taken around in our, our car. I never paid for the, the car itself. I never paid for the insurance. I never paid for gas. It, it all just was free to me. I ate for free. Food. There was never not food. There was always food in the fridge, in the pantry, and it was free to me. All my medical expenses were completely covered. I never paid for medical insurance or any particular procedure. And here's what's sad, and I think this is pretty true. For almost two decades, I don't, I don't ever remember saying, thank you. Thank you, Randy and Kate. This is incredible that I get all of this for free that you guys just do this. I may have sort of offered a token thanks, you know, maybe Christmas time or on a birthday, but just sort of the regular, everyday good gifts. I, I remember doing a lot of grumbling. I remember there were many, many times where we'd be riding in the car and I'd say, why is it taking so long? Or my mom would serve some dinner and I'd say, what? Why, why, why this? Right? I could have said, this is amazing, another free dinner. What? There seems to be no end to the free dinners. But no, I was like, really? You're going to serve me this garbage? 
right? I did a lot of grumbling. I was, I was kind of a grouchy person. I wasn't really a thankful person. That wasn't, at least it's safe to say that wasn't what my instincts prompted me to do. True story, I remember going off to college. You know, first taste of independence for a lot of kids growing up in America. It's where they have to go off and like learn how a laundry machine works. Like, how do you do laundry? Uh, you know, how do I get food? Uh, these types of things. I was still receiving a lot of help from, from that couple, Randy and Kate, but I had to do some stuff on my own. And I remember my freshman year of college in, in Marlette Dormitory, second floor, I can remember vividly sitting at the little desk they provide for you in the dorm, and I remember composing a letter to my parents. Uh, first time in my life, I really remember sincerely thinking this and trying to communicate this, uh, saying to my, my mom and dad, thank you so much for all of the support and the provision and honestly, the long-suffering patience and forgiveness. Wow, holy moly. Y'all have just overwhelmingly provided for me. First time I can ever remember feeling just a, a strong, heartfelt sense of gratitude. And God says, that's what I want for y'all. God says, look, every good thing that you have is from me. Even if you're here today and you don't believe in God, God would say, look, you don't have any good thing. You don't care about anything. You don't experience any meaningful, purposeful thing unless you get that from me. Everything you have, you receive it from God. Even the, the good work you do, the hard work you do, that's all, that's all connected to the grace of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, I worked harder than anybody. And just when you think Paul's being conceited, he immediately follows it up with, but it's not really me. It's God. God at work in me. It's all from God. And in a moment, we're going to come to this meal, the Lord's Supper. And obviously, you know, this is the thing we regularly partake of. This is a, a place where we regularly gather to radically receive, to remind ourselves that we're not self-sufficient. We don't save ourselves. We receive our salvation. And what's wild about this, y'all, is that we do this regularly. I mean, you could come to this table and say, didn't we just do this two weeks ago? And then we did it two weeks before that and two weeks before that. I mean, we do this a lot. Why, why do we keep doing this? Because God is so emphatic about this. He's so insistent. He says, I want you to just incessantly receive. As you received Christ in this posture of desperation, continue to receive Christ. Always be reminded of how he is the root system of your life. You don't get any good thing apart from him. Be radically receptive. This meal comes with a warning. The Bible says that if you don't examine yourself, if you don't discern what's really being offered here, you're, you're risking uh, eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And, and I think a really practical, helpful way to think about that is um, to ask yourself, do I want to kind of just go through the motions here, you know, have this sort of perfunctory way of receiving this meal, but then, you know, I want to get back to my real life where I'm chronically discontent and I grumble and I complain and I don't really want to be grateful. I want to grumble. I want to be critical 
and I want to whine and, and be hysterical about stuff. That's what I want. I mean, you look around at the world, it seems like, yeah, there's a market for that. We love to, to be offended and upset, and we love to complain. But if you partake of this meal, what you're saying is, no, I don't want that anymore. That's miserable. I don't want to be a grumbling, grouchy complainer anymore. I want to revel in the redemption of Christ, and I want that to get inside of me, and I want it to define my life. I want to be a person dominated by gratitude for what God has done in my life. So that's what you need to ask yourself before you come and partake of this meal. Do you want to be overwhelmed by the grace of God? Do you want to be reminded of what Jesus did for you and, and, and say, I want that to be the main thing in my life. And I want to abound in thanksgiving because of what Jesus has done for me and how he has loved me. Let's pray and ask God to help us discern that. We pray, Jesus, that you would guide us into the light of being grateful, being discontent and being grouchy is darkness. It's miserable. It's suffocating for us and for everyone around us. But being grateful because of the grace that is found in Christ alone, that is life to the fullest. That is, that is light. That is salt. That is just good. That is just good all around. And we pray that you would cause us to revel in this redemption that we have in Jesus, as we partake of the body and the blood of our Savior who pursued us, even when we were still far off, even when we were still his enemies, and pursued us in such a radical way, laid down his life for us, I pray that we would be compelled to relish that redemption. It wouldn't be automated. It would be something we deeply contemplate and savor and appreciate, and that we would be a community defined by gratitude because of the grace that we have in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.